So tonight I'm going to talk about metta practices um, and talking about the, the Brahma Vihara heart. And so one of the things that's been important to me and also me and Cheryl really both because we teach quite often, we, tr- we teach a lot together, is that we really try to attempt to present uh, an authentic lineage of teachings that really goes back through a tradition to really what uh, the historic Buddha would have taught. So we, we've both been fortunate enough to have teachers who come from really deep and very transformative lineage paths. And so part of that is, one of the things that I like to think about actually that makes me feel inspired about the practice is this idea that from this moment back that uh, there has not been an unmindful breath in 2,600 years. Somebody somewhere has been carrying the practice all the way up until the present moment. And there's almost this electrical pulse that kind of has been transmitted all through 2,600 years. And one of the things I really love about being here uh, at Vallecitos is this is a really um, one, of the, one of the centers that really has preserved that kind of teaching lineage, um, both from the Thai forest tradition and also from the Burmese tradition. And, you know, most of my primary teachers actually have taught here before and and still teach here. And so one of the things that's important is, like, um, by honoring teachers and the lineage, we can sometimes get a sense of confidence or gratitude that we actually have the good fortune of being able to be receptacles or be receivers of, of these practices. In all of the arenas of, of things that people do um, to improve the quality of their life, being able to be available and open to receive these really deep Dharma uh, transmissions is really a, a really good fortune for all of us to be able to have the opportunity to, to have that as part of our lives. And so this, this idea kind of can build, really build trust and really build confidence in practice. And really, this is actually, a, everything I'm saying is really an expression of the Brahma Vihara heart. It's this expression, this experience of gratitude, of the opportunity to be able to participate in something like this. These really retreat experiences are, are, are to some degree sacred, which is a word I don't use often. And when we think about Brahma-vihara, there's a couple of different ways you can think about it. So Brahma, in the traditional Pali sense, means something like, like divine, sublime, or even sacred. And vihara means a type of abiding, or a dwelling, or really a place. So we could say that this, this heart of Brahma-vihara is a, is a sacred place that is something that we're not really trying to manufacture so much, but we're really actually trying to recognize that these, these qualities of heart are qualities that, that, that are available and that are intrinsic in our, in our experience, in our human experience. So we're not necessarily looking for them or trying to manufacture them as much as they're things that we want to uncover. And what's usually covered, what covers it up is our 
is our sense of habituation, our incessant thinking, our sense of self. And a lot of what covers it up really is our, our pain narrative. The narrative that we have about our, our lives being painful or difficult or uh, not going the way we wanted them to. And so that creates a kind of an aversion or a fear or an intimidation or a, a really a distrust and, and a disconnection from, from qualities that are actually just basically available right below the surface and really in the body more than the mind, I think. So this idea, my teacher Stephen Smith calls these beautiful spiritual emotions. And we all have these qualities of loving kindness, compassion, appreciation, gratitude, and equanimity. And so there, as much as anger, fear, and sadness uh, have come on, uh, coming with the system, these also have are part of our system. And so a couple years ago, some of you know I was in a motorcycle accident. I want to talk about that a little bit because it was a very... For me, a very... Um, tangible expression of this kind of practice of just like something that's in my body. So I was driving a motorcycle down Vermont Avenue in, in Hollywood, Los Angeles, and, and I was driving the motorcycle and a car sort of pulled out in front of me and I just, I don't know if I hit the car or the car hit me or we hit each other, but there was a collision nonetheless. And at some and at you know, moments later, maybe a minute or two later, I I was laying on the concrete and the first thing that I realized, the first idea that arose in my mind, I was like, I, I think I'm okay. I was like, I think I'm okay. And I had this tremendous sense of ease actually in my body. I didn't have really any pain at all. I didn't really have any fear. I was very, very lucid. I had recently been reading some books by Peter Levine and he talked about this experience of getting hit by a car and laying in the road. And for some reason I remembered that and I kind of did a scan of my body. I, I think my face feels good, my shoulders feel good. I think I'm breathing, I don't see any blood. And I was like, well my back really, definitely something's not good with my back. I actually shattered my pelvis. So I knew something wasn't right. And I said, I'm just gonna lay here. I said, and I was very lucid. I was like, I'm in Los Angeles. The ambulance will be here any second now, and I'll, and I'll be fine. And I just laid with my cheek on the, on, the, on the blacktop and just had really actually not much concern or worry about what was going to happen next. I really felt this tremendous sense of metta of this. I'll, I'll be okay. You know, my, I'm going to be okay. And then, you know, being in the hospital for six to eight weeks having these, um, again, this, this uh, not really much fear at all. Um, really mostly just feeling lots of, of gratitude that, that I was going to be okay. Feeling lots of um, metta, lots of ease, lots of like, uh, you know, kindness and love and, and uh, acceptance for myself. Not a lot of blaming, like, what were you thinking? What is like, well, I'm saying, what are you fucking stupid? Like, none of that really. And actually, mostly the experience of being in the hospital was fairly, fairly pleasant. At the time, I was, I was working 
and I really wasn't liking my job so much. And there was a lot of stuff in my, in my relationships, in my work relationships, in my Dharma community that was really difficult. So I was like sort of happy to be in the hospital. <laughs> I was like, yeah. nobody was fucking with me, right? You know, it was just like, I was like, oh, man, like, the food sucks, but this isn't so bad. And I kind of was, and I, and I really started to realize that these qualities were in my body. That there's this sense of gratitude and appreciation and compassion. Well, it wasn't in my mind at all. It wasn't so much in my thoughts. It was actually, it was literally in my body. And then at one point, uh, a friend of ours, uh, a girl named J-Mo, Jessica Mori, who runs an organization called I Be Me, she teaches mindfulness to kids. She was in our, a teacher training uh, that I was in it against the stream. And she also shares the same Dharma lineage that I do. Stephen Smith and Michelle McDonald Smith, and they had organized a, a Facebook meta-sit for me uh, with Stephen Smith, who was in Thailand, and people auctioned all over the world, and so they, the time zone thing was... And at the time uh, that people were doing this sit, one of the nurses came in, and they were going to try to see if they could get me to stand up. And it was me, my wife, Joanna Harbour was there, Johnny C, some of you might know Johnny C, you know Johnny C, he was there. Noah Rich was there. And I, I stood up. I just started crying. And it was just crazy that like, there was this like an international meta practice going on at the same time. And I don't really like, typically believe in that kind of stuff. But at that moment, it was impossible to deny that there was some dharmic transmission that was holding everything together. And there was no way to deny that it was a result of, of years and of practice and of being on these kinds of experiences. And then, when I got out of the hospital, I had this really kind of massive transmission of like, this really massive reprioritization of my values. There was a whole bunch of things that were going on in my mind and my experience that was just things that kind of tortured me or bothered me or, you know, these kind of mental things you guys are seeing all the time. They just, I just kind of was like, I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to worry about what these people think. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm not going to worry about that. If you can die like that, if it can literally end like that, then why am I suffering over all of these things that actually I don't even really care about anyway? These social norms and these kind of pressures and these supposed to be like this and should be like that and and the in the in the way in which I, I I have a history or have an experience of betraying myself because of what I think somebody else wants me to be. Mm-hmm. Betraying myself because I think the world or other people want to see me in a certain kind of way. And the tendency to to wanting to please that, that rather than actually um, be true to myself, and so that that just kind of that literally kind of just switched off. 
And it was just like, no. And then as that switched off, we think about, you know, sort of uh, right view or really like part of really this, this complete view is actually seeing the world and seeing our lives and ourselves and our experience through the heart, through metta. It's actually, it's as much as right view, as much as wisdom and understanding is. It's just as equally important. And so it became very, very clear where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. We moved pretty soon after that. We bought land, we built the house. I, I just sort of did all the stuff that I always wanted to do, <laughs> regardless and in spite of anything else that... And, 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 and I paid a fairly big price for it, actually. Uh, on some levels. And I'm still actually recovering uh, financially and socially and, and, and sangha-wise. And it, it was a really big, it was a very difficult thing to do. But I just knew that I had to do it. And part of me knew actually like in a, a sort of a, a fierce compassion thing of like, this is how I should be living anyway. This is like, to be true to yourself is really actually so important. And, but we get talked out of it, don't we? We constantly are getting talked out of it. And so these, these really, these, these practices are, are, are transformative. They, they actually change something within us, and it can actually really turn on a dime for some of us. And so when we think about uh, teachers that we've had or retreats that we've been on, there is this way in which we have, sometimes we call it insight, but sometimes we have these big insights that are actually dharmic transmissions. And we have an experience, and then for some reason everything on the other side of that experience, it seems different. We almost have like a, a rebirth of, of sorts, I think. Like where an old part of us dies, and a new part of us emerges out of that sort of the phoenix that rises out of the ashes. And I think if we all think about it, you can probably think of uh, many experiences in your life where you've kind of had that. And that, that, that's a really great thing to learn how to pay attention to. And so I want to talk a little bit about these practices and really the way that these... Uh, the way that these meta practices work and, and kind of as a system of training as much as we think about the foundations of mindfulness and a lot of the Buddhist teachings are a system of training um, these practices can be seen in, in a similar way although it's a little bit more elusive so I just kind of want to talk about each one a little bit and understand what they are and what they're not and how they they're, they're work together so the meta practices uh, loving kindness, karuna compassion, mudita, appreciative joy, gratitude, and equanimity, they're all actually variations of metta practice. So we start really kind of with this foundational practice of, of metta or loving kindness, um, really kind friendliness, this kind of relationship to experience that's a sense of okay, a sense of safety, a sense of ease, right? this kind of uh, almost like a homeostatic experience where we are, have an internal sense of ease regardless of the external conditions that we're faced with, which is actually the definition of homeostasis. And so there are some, there's, there's some near, what they call near and far enemies. And of course the, um, the near enemy of metta, what can look like metta that's not metta, is a kind of conditional love or a type of an attachment. 
where it's like we feel kind or we feel friendly towards something, but we're actually pretty attached to that. The far enemy, of course, one more easier to recognize, sort of the opposite is uh, fear uh, and resentment, aggression, violence, ill will. That's sort of the, the, the far enemy, the opposite of metta. And so we can see actually these qualities um, in our experience, even on a moment-to-moment, the aggressive thought, the violent thought, the resentful thought. Right? So it's good for us to not categorize these as bad or wrong, but just kind of being able to become familiar with these aspects of our mind. And, and what they do is those qualities, the violence, the aggression, the fear, the ill will, they, they really block the metta. They kind of cover it up almost like a, a veil of darkness that sits over it, and we, can't, we don't have access to that. And so it's a, it, it's a, it, it sees with, with kindness. It has a, it's characterized by uh, promoting this desire to promote the welfare and the well-being of self and others. That's um, the characteristic of metta. Um, it, it, in, a, in a sense of its function, it has a function, it really prefers and it inclines towards welfare and well-being of self and other. It has a resonating quality. If I can resonate with the goodness of another person, then, then there's a meta attunement that kind of happens. And we, we see this. This is not un, uh, that unusual of an experience for those of us who have people that are close to us, whether it's a, a partner, a friend, a family member. There's a kind of resonance of goodness, seeing the goodness in others and also in ourselves. It manifests as the removal of ill will and the removal of any inclination or idea of harming. So there's, there's a harmlessness to it. It kind of, it removes that. It overcomes that tendency in the mind. And actually it's proximate cause. What really gives rise to the cause of it is, is seeing other people, seeing beings and ourselves as worthy, as equals, as friends, as fellow people traversing this landscape. So it really actually... Uh, it sees other people uh, as being worthy, sort of regardless of maybe uh, how they're living or what they're doing. Which is hard, right? Because we see, when we look at the global landscape, we can have a hard time recognizing the goodness in people sometimes because of how they live and what they do. It doesn't mean that they don't have that. It just means that, you know, the, you know, the idea of hurt people hurt people, that people who are suffering so much, it's just what they do. Is that violent, aggression, contemptuous. And this is kind of really what it destroys humanity. So as sort of practitioners, our, our goal is to cultivate this quality of metta that's not based on the conditions of the other person or the conditions of ourselves. Right? Which is a pretty noble task and not something that's always easy to do. Karuna, or compassion which is a word, a kind of a loaded word. It's a, it's a kind of... Um, it's, I find, to be something that's very challenging. Um, it's not an automatic response. But really what it is, it, it, it's the heart's response, or the heart-mind, the chitta, the heart-mind's response uh, to the anguish of ourselves or the anguish of the world. It's not a rejection or a, resent, or, or a resistance. 
It's actually being able to attune or to empathize with, with, with the suffering or the anguish of somebody else or, or our own. And if I can't attune, if I can't acknowledge the, 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 the anguish and, and the pain of my life, I'm going to have no ability to bear yours. Right, so really, all of these practices really do have to start at home. They really have to be cultivated inside out. Uh, it's characterized by, by promoting the removal uh, of, of, of the suffering and the anguish of ourself or somebody else. It's actually really an action. It, it's, it's a willingness to, to, to help. I see your suffering and I, and I want to help you. It's, it's the promoting the removal of that. His function, again, is, is, is a responsiveness to that. Not a resistance or a fear or an inability to bear, but the function of that is actually to really participate and to respond in a way that's going to be beneficial. Even if there seems to be no beneficial response, sometimes the beneficial response is to just be in that experience without the overlay of the resistance or the ill will or the fear. It manifests as non-cruelty and non-controlling. I think this is very interesting because when we think about the, the far enemy of compassion, it's cruelty uh, and it's control and manipulation. And a lot of this is really the ways in which we're uncaring towards ourselves and the way that we're trying to control. I never uh, recognized that until I was looking it up earlier today, this, this idea, and it's very subtle this sort of self-control, this kind of way in which we try to manipulate the conditions because they're unbearable. And that, that's a little bit of a self-betrayal to the way that we try to control or to manipulate or to, to make, make a, a fictitious narrative that we know is anything but the truth. And, and the, the near enemy, the near enemy of compassion, is really important to recognize because it's a very slippery slope. I think is it, is, it, is grief, uh, sorrow, and pity. Grief, sorrow, and pity can can be very, very close. That's why it's a near enemy. It's it's very, very, very close to compassion. It can maybe feel like it, but it's actually uh, it, it's not fully expressed. There's, there's a kind of Instead of a rising out of it, there's a kind of a collapsing into it where we, get, we fall into grief, into sorrow, into pity. Which is a lot of times the, the cultural view around compassion as being weakness. The big confusion is that, is that we think of it as pity. Feeling sorry for oneself. Feeling sorry for another. Not compassion, I kind of like, good luck with that. This term they use in the South that's very, very much a great example of this. Oh, bless his heart. <laughs> you might be familiar with that. The very pitying. Oh, that poor fool. Right? It's a kind of belittling. And so when, when metta is met with this kind of anguish of the world, uh, pain of ourselves or others, the, met, the metta, it's still metta, but it, 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 it kind of morphs or it, 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 it transforms into a karuna quality, so it's sort of metta karuna, because it, it, knows, it, it knows, the wisdom of metta knows that the right thing to do, the wise thing to do, 
the, the complete understanding thing to do with it is that this moment, this particular moment, this experience calls for a compassionate response. So that there's actually a lot of wisdom in metta. It just knows that that's what needs to be, that's what's going to be helpful, that's going to be skillful. That's actually the right view in this moment. It's not confused, it's not scared. Sometimes it's called fearless compassion. It's not intimidated by the conditions, it's not scared of the conditions. It's just able to respond in a way that's, that's beneficial. The other, the other third one, so because we have the metta sort of transformed into compassion or karuna in the face of anguish, there is a metta that transforms in the face of joy and happiness and success and the beauty of the world. Right? When we're in those conditions, it, compassion wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense to be compassionate towards joy or to be or to the success or the well-being of others. It, 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 that's not necessary in that moment. What's necessary is a sense of mudita, which is translated as a appreciative joy or empathetic joy, or uh, I really feel it's really more likely to gratitude. So I'm actually able to participate in your happiness. I'm able to participate in your accomplishment, in your success. I'm able to, to really participate in the joy of the world without it needing to be mine. Think about how tragic it is. The only way you can participate in joy is if it's happening to you. And the, it really helps with the far enemies of, of, of mudita is, is, is envy, how come them and not me, jealousy, and this, you know, we live in this culture of constant comparing our outsides against other people's outsides. And this really is very destructive because it's, it gives rise to that sense of envy and that sense of jealousy. It's also very tragic when it's, when it's somebody that we care about mm-hmm. who's having the success mm-hmm. and the accomplishments in their life that we actually feel envious. And actually what, and what lies underneath all of that, the inability to participate and to rejoice and to attune to somebody else's joy and what drives that envy and that sense of jealousy, the engine that drives that is our own sense of unworthiness. Mm. And, and if we have that sense of unworthiness, then we actually have a hard time participating in our own joy. Because a lot of times we can feel like we're undeserved of it. I don't deserve to be happy. I don't deserve to have joy in my life. And that's kind of the most destructive manifestation of that sort of far enemy. Uh, some people actually are scared of joy. Because of impermanence and because of a lot of things. We, we've maybe, maybe we've had lots of joyous experiences in our life that ended. And we've been burned or we've been let down, we've been disappointed. And we can create this view, this wrong view, that joy is actually too painful. So I'm actually going to avoid it. I don't want anything to do with it, actually. Because I know that if I have a great connection, a great relationship, a great job, all the different hedonic and spiritual joys of the world, when they end or they get stripped away or they die or they, they move on, the pain of that, or the fear of the pain of that is so intense that I'd just rather not even go there. 
which is sort of a very common thing in our culture, is that people, uh, people are a little bit more comfortable with suffering than they are with joy. And then the, the, the near enemy of that is a sense of an exuberance or an attachment. A kind of, uh, a kind of restlessness, uh, a sort of uh, anxious kind of like, is this going to last? What's going to... Sort of like, it becomes actually a little bit painful because it's too much. It's not, there's not a way, there's not, there's, the metta is not there, the mudita is not there. It's just kind of a restless, maybe even a suspicion of it. And so the characteristic of this quality is it's really being able to um, uh, have a sense of gladness in the success and the, the accomplishments of others, of being glad for the other person, of being glad for that. I'm so glad for you, I'm so happy for you that you've had this experience, this new relationship, this new job, this, this, you know, this success in your life. And that's it's characterized by that kind of quality. It functions, it functions as a sense of non-jealousy, non-envy, and non-comparing. So when mudita is actually present in the, in the heart-mind, uh, envy and jealousy and comparison are, aren't there. They can't be there. So it kind of overrides that tendency. It really kind of destroys those, those habits of mind. And its manifestation is actually what it does, is it eliminates aversion. So if there's mudita, if there's actual gladness, then there's no aversion. There's no resistance. There's actually just an attunement towards that which is joyous, which is good, which is pleasurable, which is accomplished, which is beautiful. There's no aversion there. And again, it's a proximate cause. What, what allows it to to arise, what causes this mudita to arise is a seeing and attuning to somebody else's joy. Even, even our own. But really a lot of times what can um, trigger it, not all triggers are bad, <laughs> what can trigger the cause of that is, is to see the joy in somebody else and to attune and to see and to be glad for that quality. And so this, these, these, the metta, metta is in all of it. Metta is in compassion, metta is in mudita. It's, it's in there, but the, it needs to have that wisdom. We need to understand the metta needs to have that kind of knowing. And, and when that knowing is accomplished, when the metta is in, at its full fruition, when it's accomplished, when, it, when, when the metta is, is a wise kind of metta, it, 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 the experience is equanimity. Which is kind of this, um, which is the most subtle of all of the Brahma Viharas. It's sort of this serene acceptance of things as they are. This tranquil, contented acceptance of things as they are, regardless of how things are. Again, it's this, it's this homeostatic, homeostatic of mind, of body, of emotion. That there's an evenness, there's a, there's, a, there's a serene acceptance regardless of what's going on externally or what's going on internally. One of the definitions in the Abhidharma, uh, the Buddhist uh, kind of manual on Buddhist psychology, is it's, it's translated as there hyphen in the middleness. 
So it's like there hyphen in the hyphen middleness. So we're like in this, we're in the middle, we're just kind of even. It's really kind of a balanced. It's neutral. It's not dictated by pleasure or pain. It's a neutrality. It's a, it's a, it's a being in the middle of whatever is happening with a kind of uh, ability to have a type of acceptance towards that. An evenness of mind in the face of whatever the presenting conditions are. It's pretty kind of a valuable thing to have access to. This kind of equanimity quality. This homeostatic, this kind of ability to be at ease with the conditions regardless. So there's a, there's a non-preference to it. It can also be um, confused easily um, because the uh, the near enemy of equanimity, what something that can look like equanimity that's not equanimity, is a kind of cold indifference, a sort of detached. I'm sort of just. I'm I'm actually homeostatic because I'm actually disconnected from what's happening, right. which is really kind of. Uh, one of the sort of spiritual bypasses that we see in, in Buddhist teachers and really spiritual teachers is kind of, they seem to be equanimous, but actually they could totally care less. It's this sort of cold indifference, sort of a, uh, I'm, I'm not actually in this experience with you. Right? It can look like equanimity, but it's not. Equanimity actually is able to really, there's a felt sense to it. There's an attunement quality to it. But you're able, because you've cultivated metta, karuna, mudita, because those other qualities are there, it, they support that to, to be held up in that moment. And of course, the far enemy is, is the reactive mind. Is the reactive mind. Uh, the far, far enemy of equanimity is the, is, the, is the grabbing on to what I want, the pushing away of what I don't want the clinging, the preferential, the idea, the wrong view that I'd be happy if I could get this thing and the reactivity and all of the mental proliferation and fabrication and story that we have that gets built around, I'd be happy if this happened, I'd be happy if this happened, I'd be happy if this stopped happening. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a strong preference there's, and there's a view that's kind of a locked-in view and we, we believe it, we buy into it. Like, no, I pretty much would actually be totally happy if that were the case. And there's, there's no equanimity. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a deep cognitive distortion. And in that moment, then this present moment experience is, is, is certainly lacking. And that can trigger this sense of unworthiness, undeservedness. Why does this always happen? Why am I a person who has to deal with all of this? And really that suffering, that self-clinging, preferential not serene acceptance of the conditions as they are. It's characterized by equanimity. When equanimity is present, it it balances all the other mental factors. It's able to hold all of the other mental factors in the mind with a sense of balance. Even, even the defilements, even the beautiful mental factors, it's able to understand that there's a whole range of mental factors and it, and it can kind of balance those and it maintains that evenness. 
it, its function is really to prevent preference. And it also its function is it prevents deficiency and excess. It prevents those attitudes of mind, those views of, of, of a deficiency, a kind of poverty mentality that some of us can get into. I, I'm not deserving of things. I don't deserve this. Whatever it is that you think that you don't deserve. It, it really prevents that. It also prevents the excess. Right? So it balances those out. It has that sort of a humility quality to it. It manifests as this neutrality, evenness, and balance. It's really kind of it's really a fruition thing. It's a it's a result of probably lots of work. But it's also available in every single moment. I used to think of equanimity as sort of this goalpost way down at the end of the path that I maybe will get to eventually. Which is a, a wrong view. Equanimity is all of the Brahma Viharas are are available in, in every single moment if we can if we can train and we can hold our experience in just the right way. It, it is a possibility. What actually causes the equanimity? One of the, the, the key proximate causes of it, which I find to be interesting, is, is is the development of the four foundations of mindfulness, the development of the contemplation of the body, feelings, mind states, and, and mind objects. This kind of full development of satipatthana which is also known as the direct path to liberation, which is a lot of what we've been doing here, understanding the mind and how it functions. And it's also the development of the four Brahma-viharas. So whether you're practicing Brahma-viharas or foundations of mindfulness, they both end in the same parking lot. So that's the proximate cause. So, so Vipassana uh, practiced well and skillfully leads to the experience of equanimity, as does loving-kindness, compassion, appreciation also ends in that same experience. One thing also, too, that's, um, I think, interesting, and me and Cheryl were kind of chewing on this a little bit earlier, is this, so this metta bhavana is what this is called, so there's the four foundations of the mindfulness and it's the cultivation of the heart, which is the development, metta bhavana practice. A lot of teachers don't teach metta bhavana. A lot of teachers that I actually really love and respect do not teach it for a variety of reasons. Uh, Sayyid Avatajaniya, who Cheryl teaches, practice with a lot, doesn't teach it. One of my favorite monastic teachers, uh, Ajahn Sachito, doesn't teach it. Stephen Batcher doesn't teach it, and and one of the understandings of that, and I don't mean I don't I'm not trying to say this as being bad or wrong as much as it may be interesting, is that there is an understanding in the tradition that that when mindfulness and vipassana, when when the practice is is developed in its full fruition, that that the outcome is the Brahma Viharas because they're sort of already there, and that if we do the the, the proper work. Uh, of our practice, then those qualities just kind of emerge as a resultant. Uh, and also, too, for a variety of maybe obvious reasons, uh, people sometimes early on or new to the practice, people sometimes can really, really struggle with these practices because of the, the way that they're taught, because of the, the using of the phrases or the, the, the polarity of, of what loving kindness can oftentimes trigger. 
which was really my problem, is I would, we, when I would do loving kindness practice 20 some odd years ago, you know, the, 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 the traditional phrases were, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free from suffering. Um, I don't use may I be happy, I, I still don't use it, uh, because it, it, it's too triggering for me, because I would say to myself, may I be happy, and my mind would say, I'm not happy. And I would say, may I be happy? And my mind would say, I'm, I'm not happy. And I would say, oh, may I be happy? And I said, I would say, uh, I'm not happy, and do you want to you you get into it? <laughs> you want to know why I'm not happy? And I'd be like, I don't know, why are you not happy? <laughs> A litany. I just couldn't do it. I wasn't able to do it. So sometimes when we, when we come into the practice with a, with a whole, uh, maybe a level of suffering that's a, we've gotten more than our fair share, uh, that that kind of practice can be very, very problematic. But the aversion to it, I think, is it, it's good to investigate this because the aversion to it is not necessarily a great reason to not try. I didn't try for a long time, and I, and I don't suggest that you don't try. Uh, because I think that, A, there's a way in which, um, because these practices, I think the metta practices specifically, there is a very large component to the Brahma-Vyara heart that is instead is actually nonverbal. Uh, and also when we think about our emotions, uh, is nonverbal. In a lot of our life, we live pre-verbal. You know, we don't start talking until, you know. We've been around for a couple of years. So if we've had any abuse or woundedness or trauma that happened to us pre-verbal, then a lot of times it hangs out in that pre-verbal area. Right. And so there is a component to these um, practices, I think, that um, it does require maybe a, a little bit of blind faith or a little bit of trust because of what we're trying to do is we, we're trying to use the verbal language concepts by saying phrases sometimes to kind of get those and because polarity is a thing like I said I would say may I be happy and my mind would just go to the opposite well I'm not happy I'd be like well may I be happy but I'm not happy and then I would feel so terrible about myself that I'm trying to cultivate this loving kindness and I'm experiencing the exact opposite of what I'm trying to cultivate now this, now I really suck at this I, and then uh, you can get that uh, experience of self-hatred or uh, the, the, these, these far enemies arise because that's the polarity. So I think that we sometimes have to have a certain degree of respect for our subjective experience when we start to cultivate these practices because, um, because of the fact that they're not uh, the technique of Brahma-vihara, the cultivation of the Brahma-vihara heart is not as cleanly, neatly laid out as like bringing the mind back to the object or the cultivation of awareness. It's a little bit more, the technique of, of vipassana, of mindfulness, is a little bit more easier to discern because we can use the left brain, we can use verbal components, we can have a step-by-step way to do it, which we typically like. We typically like that. So trying to see these as um, uh, embodied emotion uh, that are part of our DNA, they're part of our evolution, they're part of our humanity. Um, they're really probably more in, they're probably more in the body than they are in, in the sort of the conceptual mind. 
and we get, for those of you who have been on retreats before, and you know that there are times where we have these kind of openings or we have these kind of experiences where we have access to, to these qualities and really trying to see them as um, embodied emotion and, and sometimes in a secular sense they're called enduring traits. So they're, they're, they're actually traits uh, that we can start to develop and they become more available to us in, in, in situations. Uh, my experience though is, is, is you're not going to choose to become more compassionate. You're not going to choose to become more kind. You're going to have to probably do something practical or something practice-based to encourage these these qualities to to arise in, 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 in the experience that we're having. The development, that's why it's called metta bhavana. Bhavana means to cultivate. And really when we think about, oh, I don't use the word meditation any more than I have to because I don't particularly think it's a good term and it's confusing because really even in, in the Buddhist tradition in the, in the ancient Pali language the Buddha didn't talk about meditating he talked about cultivating mm. so bhavana is, is a cultivation of awareness it's a cultivation of kindness it's something that we cultivate it's not something that we agree with or don't agree with or something that we think makes sense or doesn't make sense so much as much as their, their innate intrinsic qualities that are available to us, but we have to kind of put a little bit of energy into coaxing them into their into our experience. And so they can be also seen as their their responsive, their responses to conditions. They're they're a skillful appropriate part of, of, of right view or wise view is uh, seeing that this is actually to view pain or anguish through the lens of compassion. Seeing that with compassion rather than with fear. That's, that's not an easy, easy switch for us. So the right view around uh, suffering and anguish and, and the tragedy of the world is to see that through a lens of compassion, through a lens of caring, through an understanding that the people who are causing harm are probably in lots of suffering. Which is a very um, courageous and actually maybe even scary thing to consider when you look at some of the things that happen. And then when we look at the other side of the coin of, of the joy, the beauty of the world, we want to really be able to view that, to perceive that, to experience that through a lens of appreciation, uh, a, a, a deservedness, uh, a gratitude. Uh, I'm worthy to participate in the beauty of the world. Rather than having envy or jealousy or even maybe even fear. Some of us find that we're scared of joy. And so when we think about, you know, again, the self and not self, is that um, one of the things that's interesting about the, the reason why the, the Buddha calls them Brahma Viharas is because uh, at the time, the worldview of the time, mo- most of the religious traditions of the time uh, had this worldview that, that there was sort of Atman and Brahman 
and, and sort of Brahma was God. Um, and so, uh, and so um, there was a, I forget the phrases, but they used to like, if you were, if you were to see somebody on the street, you would say basically, may you, may you dwell with Brahma. There was a kind of a nice thing to say, like in the spirit, like, you know, may you be at ease, or, you know, may you be happy, or kind of this, it was may you, may you be with, may you dwell with, with, with Brahma. And, and the Buddha actually flipped that around and said, actually, to dwell with, with, with God, dare I say, to dwell with the divine, to dwell with the sacred, to dwell with the beautiful, is, is to be in these qualities of heart. That's what that is. It's not this high, supreme figure that we want to kind of not be judged by, or we, we're not trying to go to some other realm and, and try to achieve some sort of high flute way of being. We're actually trying to, to embody these qualities. So Brahma Vihara is really, really actually means to dwell with God, to be with God, to be in the sacred, to be in the divine, to be in, in it's the best expression that human beings can can live into. It's, it's as good as it gets for us. And it's a possibility, it's a potential. And it, it's not something out there that we sort of have to go get and bring in. We always think of things that way because of our consumer mind. So, okay, okay, where's the love, where do I get the loving kindness thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> everything's outside in. I need to get the thing and I need to get it in here. But no, it's just actually inside out, bottom up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we have to do, a lot of the hard work is really to try to, you know, as Cheryl's been talking about all week, is working with these defilements and working with these difficult aspects of our mind and working with the clinging and working with the attachment because that's sort of the, the grime and, and, the, and, and the matter that builds up on sort of the beautiful bronze bowl. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of the, the sediment in, 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 the, in the mange and the kind of, uh, you know, the yuck of it all that kind of sits on top of that. And we have this like nasty thing until we start polishing it and cleaning it and trying to uncover its intrinsic value. But a lot of times we don't even have the view or we don't agree with the idea that it actually is there. So a, a lot of times here the wrong view on this Brahma-vihara heart is this idea that um, I don't actually have it and I need to get it. I need to, I need to go from without my experience and bring it in here, which is actually sort of the wrong way. And some of it is actually this, I think there's, for me there's always been an element of, of blind faith to some degree with this, of like, you know, even if it's not true, it's probably better for me to believe that it is. <laughs> <clears throat> because we, we, we see it in ourselves at times, clearly. We see it in other people probably more than we see it in ourselves. Have you ever been inspired by somebody who was able to express uh, kindness? Have you ever noticed that you're drawn towards kind people? Right? Why is that? Because there's an attunement, there's a, there's a recognition of that's a quality that I... The, the kindness within me sees the kindness in you. Mm-hmm. And when you express that, it's not that like you have it and I don't and I want it. It's no, like I see that in you because I actually have it. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why um, one thing that they talk about in the practice is, is Kalyanamita, 
which is having having spiritual friendship or having people in our lives who who um, help us see that in ourselves, and uh, probably a fairly rare commodity for most of us, where we live and the people that we're surrounded by. It's not something that you um, if you have two or three people maybe who you can share that with, you're probably fairly lucky. Mm-hmm. And it's great, I always find, to come to uh, these retreat experiences. And, and some, of the, some of the best relationships I have in my life are people I met in the context of a retreat or a dharma scenario. In fact, I'm married to, to one of them. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so we, we have this opportunity to be with people who have a shared value uh, to the point, uh, to, to the, the the value is so shared mm-hmm. that you actually made a choice to sacrifice seven days and get on airplanes and fill out forms and deal with all of the the work mm-hmm. to get here, just so you can sit here and go, man, I don't know why I came here. <laughs> <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> so it's so easy to forget that and so easy to overlook that that your practice here is actually supporting everybody else. Your practice is probably helping other people more than it's helping you in certain moments. <laughs> How many times have you kind of wandered by, the, walked down the porch and looked inside, and you said, everybody else is in there, fuck, I guess I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like when peer pressure works. <laughs> I don't want to be the only person roaming around those woods. <laughs> you know? I guess I'll go in there and sit down and have a seat. Imagine if you were here by yourself, how much sitting do you think you would do? If you were just here alone. I'd be going nuts. I know I would be. I'd be wandering around the woods trying to get a signal. I'd be like, if you go three miles that way, there's a big rock. If you stand on the rock and stand on one leg and lean a little bit to the right, you'll get one bar. I'll leave a little trail of breadcrumbs for everybody else. <laughs> so to some degree, it doesn't really matter the kind of practice that we undertake, whether it's Vipassana or Metta Bhavana. There's so many different ways of, even, even in just our tradition, even in just the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, there's so many different ways and so many different teachers and it's all going to the same place. So it's really, uh, I find, important to, to have some degree of respect and to trusting your, what feels natural for you. you know, and, 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 and try to follow what seems to be working. And don't, be, don't fret so much over what doesn't make sense or what doesn't seem to be working. Because it's all going to bring you to the same experience of this sort of awakened heart-mind. How you get there, everybody probably takes a slightly different trail. And it all ends up in the same place. So we have a kind of important way of sort of respecting our conditions and the way in which that we traverse this practice. It's all good. And so don't fret so much over what doesn't make sense. Or one, one teacher, uh, one of my uh, favorite teachers who I studied with for some time named Andrew Olinsky, who's a, probably one of the most well-respected sort of poly scholars 
I was uh, at an Abbey Dharma retreat with him, and he we were talking about uh, sort of things that don't make sense. And he said, he said I made a decision a long time ago, and he really encouraged me. He said, he said if something about the Buddhist teachings doesn't make sense, or you don't agree with it, or it's confusing, just tr- try to hold the view that I don't understand this yet. I just don't understand this mm. yet. I'm not dismissive of it. It's just sort of this Buddhist uh, idea of ahipasako, of come and see for yourself. I'm not sure if this is, makes sense. It's okay. But holding the view of, I just, I just don't understand this yet. It's okay that I don't understand this yet. But this, this contempt prior to investigation is what really, really keeps us in trouble. Right? It's like sort of, uh, it doesn't make sense, so I'm not going to do it. Right? So there's a, there's, there's a willingness to kind of uh, hold that view, that right view of, okay, I just, I'm just not there yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. I found that to be insanely valuable. Mm-hmm. Because actually the truth for me is in this whole Brahma view, it's very, very odd to me. There's, there's a huge part of me right now that is very, very reluctant and very, very skeptic that I'm even giving this talk right now. Because this was the kind of stuff early on that I was one no part of. So for me, a lot of times, this, what, you know, to some degree, I, I think this is true. Whatever you think the thing is that you don't need, that's the thing that you need. <laughs> Whatever you think is the thing of it that you're pretty sure you don't need, I guarantee you that's maybe likely actually what you totally need. <laughs> Whatever you think the problem isn't, probably is. Oh man, I had a great childhood, man. Everything was fine. I'm good. <laughs> you know, and so we have that. We want to, that's that ignorance, that denial. Right? So there's a way in which we can try to, even in the doubt and even in the suspicion and even the un- uncertainty, we can still kind of practice with that until it reveals itself to us. And this Brahma Vihara heart will, will reveal itself to you, and to some degree it probably already has in many, many ways. The question is, are you able, are you learning how to pay attention to that when it's there? Are you training your mind to be aware of this when it's happening? Because it may be happening in times and moments and you're just not, you're not, you're not with that, you're not attuned to that. You're not feeling into the felt sense of that because you're in your mind and you're missing out. So again, this is why having an emphasis on the body is so important in in practice and why the Buddha puts so much emphasis on the body because that's probably where that's going to show up. The loving kindness shows up in my body and my emotions more than it shows up in my thinking mind. Mm So, thank you for your kind attention this evening. We have about uh, 15 minutes or so to, to walk, to stretch, to enjoy the night sky, and uh, have one more sit. Me and Cheryl will be back uh, at the end of that sit to offer some reflections and some chanting for you before you go on into the night. So, thank you very much.